please be seated. I have two quick announcements just before I begin. Things that are important to me, so I want to pass them on to you. The first thing is, starting Wednesday, February 19th, we're doing leadership training. Six weeks, no homework. There's a men's leadership track and a women's leadership track. It's the same track, but you're going to do it apart from each other, just because there's just different dynamic when we have these discussions. And so I'm teaching the one track, the men's track, obviously. Wendy is teaching the female track. It's on Wednesday nights, and I got permission from Elena to say that whoever comes can come and have dinner with the Wednesday night dinner thing. And if you have kids, you can leave your kids in the childcare. So they're both at the same time. There's supper served, and there's childcare. So there's no excuses, really. I mean, that's what, basically what I'm saying. So leadership is important to me, so I'm just inviting you. February 19th, there's some forms on the back you can pick up and just remind you about that leadership training. It's just six weeks, no homework, great leadership principles. Anybody who's a leader in business, anybody who wants to be a leader in the church, anybody who's a leader in their family, which should be all of you, just great leadership principles straight from Scripture. That's on Wednesday night starting uh, the 19th. The second thing that's really important to me is roast beef. And on the 14th, we're having a roast beef dinner, also very important to me. And so I would welcome all of you to come out. It's only 10 bucks, and uh, it's the cheapest Valentine's date you're going to get, guys. So... Roast beef is important as well, and uh, I would encourage you to come out on the 14th for that. And uh, just talk to Elena or, or let the office know that you're coming. This, uh, this sermon or this series that we're continuing here uh, in 1 Corinthians on foundations, I'm glad that Paul wrote the letter the way he, that he wrote it because he kind of front-loaded it. You remember some of those early messages that we had. He front-loaded it in terms of all the riches that we have poured out, that the church is enriched by the grace of God, and that was very encouraging. And then he talked about how we have all power through the gospel, that we are empowered, the church is empowered by the gospel, also very encouraging, and, and that we're on the cornerstone of Jesus. All this encouragement front-loaded into those first couple paragraphs, and then he started to deal with the issue of unity. But he, even that issue of unity, you know, it was very encouraging because it was unity in the Spirit, and that we have the Spirit of God And the Spirit knows the depths of God, and we have that same Spirit to know the very depths of God's mind and be unified in the mind of God. Even if we're not necessarily unified with each other, we're all unified in God. And God's breadth and width and depth is huge and can include and encompass all of Christianity through all cultures and ages, you know, the country lovers and the rappers at the same time. So that was encouraging. And and I'm glad we sort of front-loaded that because we get into a couple of messages here which may be less encouraging. And I was working on this one, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8. And if you know the text, uh, there's a lot going on in there. And I was trying to come up with a way to sort of make this lighthearted and fun, and there really was no way to do it. Um, There's no one-liners out there for turning somebody over to Satan that he could destroy his flesh. I couldn't make it funny. Um, So... We're going to continue in in 1 Corinthians, and this is a very important text, and uh, we need to unpack it very carefully to understand what is going on. And so I'm just going to pray, then we're going to read the text, and then we are going to unpack it bit by bit very carefully to understand what Paul is saying in these eight verses, because like almost everything Paul writes, there's a, a lot packed in there. It's like a big, one of those big steam trunk chests that we have to unpack very carefully. 
Uh, Let's pray. Father God, uh, before we read your word and look into your word, we pray most of all for the Holy Spirit to to guide us. Uh, That as uh, I teach and speak and as people listen, your Holy Spirit is taking those words and making them yours. And that we would understand the problem that Paul is facing in Corinth and and the problems that we have as a church and what your teaching would be for us, that we would know how to deal with this rightly. And so, Father, we just pray for your anointing in Christ Jesus. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 8. This is Paul speaking to this church in Corinth, big multicultural church in a big port city. And uh, he's heard rumors about things that are going on there. He's had people reporting to him. And in his letter, now he continues... In his letter, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual impurity among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be made a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival... Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, as you read that, it's easy to get distracted in this little section of text. It's just eight verses. And as you read it, we can get distracted because the content is so dramatic, right? This is a really dramatic section of text. It's sort of really, in a way, the sort of emotional and and issue nucleus of first corinthians it's kind of a driving thing behind everything that paul is teaching and even a little bit in second corinthians as well it's dramatic it's strange it's terrifying in some ways and so our human nature tends to focus on the parts that seem scary and miss the main thrust of the text and so in this text the things that are going on here is there's there's horrible sin going on right but it's not so horrible that it doesn't hit a little bit too close to home Right? It's not murder. It's not child abuse. It's not some horrible war crime. It's not genocide. It's just sexual sin. It's just, it's just plain old passions gone wrong. Right? So it's a horrible sin, but it hits a little bit too close to home. And then the other thing going on there is there's church discipline. There's excommunication. There's public disgrace. There's being cut off from the fellowship of the faith. And, and we don't like to think about those things these days either, do we? Like we do, like that's pretty dramatic. You know, and then even more terrifying, there is this pronouncement by the Apostle Paul that this man is going to be given over in the power of Christ, given over to Satan in order that his flesh might be destroyed. It's all just in eight verses. There's a lot of really dramatic stuff going on here. And so it's easy to get distracted. And it's easy to focus on that stuff in the text. You know, could that sinner be me? Could it be someone I know? Do I deserve to be cut off from the church? Should I be handed over to Satan? You know, like, what's going on in my life that would have this church, like, have this come down on me from the church or from the Apostle Paul? You know, what happens to that guy? Like, what does that even mean? 
And so we, our minds, when we read this text, we get caught up in those sort of big dramatic things that are going on. And so when I start to unpack this, let me start by unpacking what the text is not. Sometimes when you're trying to deal with something, it's easier or it's good to start out by saying, what do we know that it's not before we start talking about what it is? And this will help bring clarity. So let me start by saying what the text is not. What, what Paul's letter is not and what this text is not and what this message is not It's not a call to legalistic sin punishing. Okay, Paul's letters do not describe churches full of graceless punishers, okay, of trying to hammer everyone or catch anybody doing something wrong. Okay, that's not what the message is about. It's not the type of church Paul describes. Simply drawing a boundary around the purity of the church is not legalism, okay? It's not judgmental. It's not graceless, as we will see soon. Right? Simply having lines or boundaries around the purity of the church is not legalism. So this is not a message about legalistic sin punishing. The second thing it's not, it's not a call to perfectionism. Okay, the text isn't saying that you have to be perfect or you're not a real Christian, or that the people of Corinth or the people at Lakeside are going to have to be perfect in order to be part of the church. If you read this letter, you realize that these people are not perfect. Okay, Paul is not dealing with perfectionism here. He's not saying, well, this guy's a sinner. Hand him over to Satan and kick him out of the church. Okay, we know it's not that because there's hundreds, probably thousands of people in the church in Corinth who are messed up in a whole lot of different ways that Paul deals with in this letter and he's not handing them all over to Satan. So it's not about perfectionism. And thirdly, it's not aimed primarily. This particular text, even though it's very easy to get pulled into what's going on with this guy and he's sleeping with his father's wife, which is probably his stepmother. And, you know, it's the sin that not even pagans, you know, even the pagans don't deal with this. You get caught up in that. The other thing this text is, is it's not primarily about that individual. It's not primarily about individuals or the individual sin. The text is about the purity of the church. It's about what's going on in the church in Corinth. It's about, the, it's about the other people. It's not about the guy who's in sin. It's about the rest of the church that Paul is upset about. It's primarily aimed at the church. So the text that Paul has written here is actually about the purity of the church. It's about a prideful theology and a lack of humility. It's about an improper stance towards sin and what a proper stance towards sin should be. And it's about accepting a whole Christ a Christ who is both a pardoner and a purifier, not just accepting half of a Christ who's only a pardoner and not a purifier. So the, the problem that Paul is dealing with in the text, and it helps us understand what, he, what he's writing, the problem that he's dealing with is he's dealing with a church that has a very low view of purity. I'll say that again. They have a very low view of purity. That's a phrase that I use a lot, low view, high view. Right? Some churches have a high view of Scripture. Right? They hold Scripture in high, so a high view of something. Or you might have a, a low view of something. You, know, you hold something in a low position. In this church, the problem that Paul is dealing with is a church that has a low view of purity. And so that's the, that's the problem that he has to come up with a solution for. How do I deal with this church in Corinth? They don't seem to care very much about purity. That's the problem. And so he's confronting this low view of purity in the church. And that low view is resulting from a prideful theology. And that prideful theology fosters an improper stance towards sin. And that then creates a false view of Christ. And so really the church is struggling with this low view of purity. And Paul needs to solve it. 
And I think we see that in a way in the modern church as well, right? You can start to recognize the things in Corinth that are also in our modern church. That we have replaced tolerance, or we've replaced grace with tolerance. That we have a very high view of tolerance, society does in general, and the mainstream evangelical church does as well, have a very high view of tolerance and a very low view of purity. So you understand the high and low view thing and the problem that Paul is dealing with. And they've replaced, and we'll get to this later on, but essentially we've taken grace and we've said grace is equal to tolerance. That we are loving because we're tolerant. And because we take a low view of purity and a high view of the person, no matter what they do, then that's the best sort of grace that we can offer as a church. And Paul says there's another kind of grace. That that's not the kind of grace that the church needs. And that tolerance is not equal to grace. Okay, so... High view of tolerance, low view of purity. Let's look into the text and see the first point, a prideful theology. Where is that coming from? So the first couple verses there, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And so Paul started out this letter sort of addressing one area of pride, which was the people... You know, I follow Apollos, or I follow Paul, or I follow Jesus, you know, the really spiritual ones. And, and there was this pride in the people that they followed. Or there was pride in, well, I don't eat meat, and I don't eat meat offered at altars, or, you know, I follow this sort of practice, or I follow this practice. I'm circumcised, I'm not circumcised. So there was pride, and it was causing disunity. And Paul attacked that pride, and he said, you all need to be unified and humbled under the Holy Spirit and know the mind of God. Now there's another kind of pride, and this kind of pride is there's this puffing themselves up over the fact that there was this sin in the church and they allowed it, right? Aren't we a gracious church? Aren't we a loving church? You know, look at the crazy sin going on in our church. But, hey, we, you know, we're proud of the fact that we have this. And, and Paul says, you're arrogant about the fact that there's sin going on in your church that not even the pagans would put up with. But they're proud about it instead of mourning, instead of grieving. And so the problem is immorality, and the root problem is pride, you know? And this ongoing, unrepentant sin, that's the key thing to take away from the sin of this man, right? It's present tense. He has his father's wife. It's an ongoing relationship that he is not repentant of. He doesn't even care whether it's sin. He's not changing his behavior, and the church isn't asking him to change his behavior. In fact, they're embracing it and arrogant about it, bragging about it boasting in their acceptance of it. And Paul says, are you crazy? You should be in mourning because this man is sinning unrepentantly, ongoing. And so the church in Corinth, and I'll say the church in North America, has, has developed a similar prideful theology of tolerance instead of grace. The church is proud that they accepted any and all sinful behavior. And the church does accept any and all sinners. And I want to be clear here. But this is not about accepting and loving any and all sinners. The church accepts and loves any and all sinners. But that is not the same as accepting any and all sin. And so we can see where the church might have developed this theology. And Paul has to counter it in other places in, in his letters. In Romans 3.21, talks about righteousness by faith, not works. And so people are saying, aren't we righteous by faith, not by our works? What do our works matter? And in Romans 6, aren't we dead to sin? Paul, you're saying we're dead to sin. So should we go on, you know, shouldn't we go on sinning so that the grace of God can abound? And Paul says, no, may it never be. So there is this 
theology that's developing out there that says sin is okay because God is gracious. And the more we sin, the more God is graceful and we're making God look better by sinning more. And so there's this theology that got developed that was in error and Paul has to try to correct it. And the church's pride is essentially this, that their tolerance is greater than God's grace. That it's more loving to affirm the sin of others than to set ourselves apart. And isn't that really humility? Aren't we really being humble when we say, well, I can't judge that person? Who am I to put them out of the church? Who am I to say that their sin is bad? I'm, I'm, too, I'm not proud. I'm too humble to say that. But that's not really humility. That's really pride. Because the proud side of that is saying that I know what God's word says. And I know that God says that we're to be refined. And I know that God says that we're to put sin far from us. But you know what? I think tolerance is better than God's version of grace. And so really it's pride because you're saying, I've come up with a better theology. I've come up with a better love than God's love, and it's called tolerance. And so I'm going to just put my theology in place instead of God's theology. My version of loving people is superior to how God loves people. And that's where the prideful theology is of these people, that they think that they have a better understanding of loving people than God does and a better understanding of grace than God does. A humble theology, on the other hand, that Paul talks about, he says you're arrogant when you should be mourning. A humble theology mourns sin. A humble theology grieves disobedience. And it sets itself at war with sin. Galatians 5.13, Paul expands on this. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So there is a grace from God that's meant for sinners like this, but it's not the false grace of tolerance, which will never save them from their sin. It's the true grace that comes from repentance. God's grace of, the grace of God leads us to repentance, to mourning, to grieving, and to actual the power to change our lives through the gospel. That's the grace that works. Tolerance doesn't change anything. Tolerance just leaves everybody where they're at and accomplishes nothing for the purification of a people for God. And so the solution that Paul wants to put forward is a humble submission to the wisdom of God's effectual grace rather than pride in our own ineffectual tolerance. So there's this prideful theology that they're boasting in their tolerance of sin. And then the second thing is an improper stance towards sin. In that big section there, Paul's talking about removing this person from among them. And in this idea of removing this person from out of the church, he brings in this idea of the leaven or the yeast. And he says, let him who has done this thing be removed from you. And he explains how in this, when he's present in the spirit, they're to do this, gathered together, they remove this person from the body of Christ He says, your boasting is not good. Again, it's the arrogance, he says later on down there in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So Paul's talking about here about the stance that we should have towards sin. Instead of a prideful theology and instead of an embracing of sin, our stance towards sin should be at war with it. It should be always separating ourselves from it when it is unrepentant when it is not causing us to mourn and to grieve and to change. And so he's talking about excommunication here, putting someone out of the church, in some cases even putting the sinner out of the church. It's the result of humility, of mourning, of realizing that our grief, in our grief, 
that, that, we're, that, we're, that we're in the wrong, that we can't have this a part of us. And so Paul uses this example to explain the proper stance that we're to have towards sin. He uses the example of leaven or yeast. And I'll just give a quick background, a little bit of background for those of us who don't bake. Uh, in understanding the picture that Paul uses, when you're baking bread, leaven or yeast, you put a little bit in the bread and it makes it puff up. You get that nice puffy white bread, you know, that's really tasty and puts on 10 pounds. Um, it causes the dough to rise. It makes it all light and fluffy and you only need a little bit. Just a little bit of, of yeast leavens the bread. A little bit and it all puffs up. And uh, one unrepentant sinner, Paul is saying here, just a little bit of unrepentant sin in the church or unacknowledged sin or even acknowledged but boasted in sin, if it's accepted by the church, it can work its way through the whole congregation. It can work its way through the whole loaf. Just this little bit of sin if you don't put it out of the church. And to continue our understanding of that picture, to get the full understanding of that picture that Paul has of the church, You understand his reference later on to the Passover feast in the final verses of the text, if you keep reading in 10 and 11. Okay, Paul refers to Christ as the Passover. And in the Passover feast that God ordained, at the time of the Passover, God instructed his people not to only eat unleavened bread, or only eat flat bread, right? That's why you see that flat, those pita breads, right? Those flat breads. They only ate flat bread at the time of the Passover, And in fact, they were instructed by God to sweep and clean every bit of yeast out of their house during the whole feast of Passover. So all their cupboards and the nooks and crannies and corners, you cleaned out your cupboards, you cleaned out your house, you had no leaven in your house. Because leaven was a sign of sin, it was a symbol of sin. God was making this dramatic picture of what our stance was to be towards sin. It was to be a stance of intolerance, that as Christians... We are at war with sin. We never make peace with sin. Sin is always something that we're putting out of ourselves, that we're always searching diligently for through the cupboards and the nooks and the crannies and the corners. And when we find sin, our stance is to put it out. And so Paul brings this up because here's this church with this prideful theology that they were boasting in the sin that was amongst them, that they had this sin in the church and they're boasting about it rather than grieving it. And their stance was to tolerate it rather than to be at war with it and never make peace with it and push it out of, out of their lives. And so Paul is presenting, he's unpacking this idea about the church, the purity of the church that is rooted in humility. That is to humble ourselves theologically to understand that we don't have a better love than God's love. That our tolerance doesn't trump God's grace. Or we need to humble ourselves before our sin and understand that our stance towards sin always has to be rejecting it. Paul is fighting here against a low view of purity in the church. They're just not taking it seriously. And he's got to show them how seriously they need to take sin. And so his solution is, take a proper stance towards sin. Never make peace with sin. Always be at war with sin. Don't you remember the picture God painted for us in the Passover of the leaven? Don't let that go. God is still the same. He still wants you putting all of that leaven out of your life. The third thing, before we get to application, the third thing is a false view. Actually, there's one more bonus section. (laughs) Two more things. Third thing, a false view of Christ. Okay, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Now, this third section is really a result of the first two. Okay? And it's these two errors, a prideful theology that elevates tolerance over grace and a low view of purity that makes Siddhartha takes an accepting stance to the yeast, to the sin, rather than a, being at war with the sin, it illuminates at the heart a false view of Christ. Those two things basically illuminate a false view of the crucified Christ that Paul is talking about in the final verses. He's talking about Christ crucified, the Passover lamb. And the Corinthian church held this false view, and I imagine that the, a lot of people in the church in North America hold this view. Possibly people here today hold this view of Christ, and it's a false view of Christ. The false view of Christ here is a divided Christ. The Corinthian church wanted Jesus who was our partner, but they didn't want Jesus who was our purifier. They wanted Christ to pardon their sin, but they didn't want Christ to purify them from their sin. And that's an easy misconception of Christ and what he's accomplished. Because Christ the Passover lamb, while the lamb is on the cross or being slaughtered in the sacrifice, the yeast is also being taken out of the house in the Passover. When you look at the full picture of the Passover and the full picture of Christ as our Passover, he is the pardoner, he is the sacrificial lamb, but he's also the purifier that takes the sin out of our life. And so you have to have a united Christ. You have to have Christ as both pardoner and purifier. And this is what Paul is fighting in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church wanted just one. They just wanted Christ the pardoner. They didn't want Christ the purifier. And in Titus 2.14, Paul goes on in Titus, he explains. He says, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people zealous for good works. God died, the Passover lamb sacrificed himself for the purpose of purification, to purify us. And so that's, you've got to take them both together. You can't just take half of the gospel. Jeremiah 6.29 says, where, where, where God's picture of this with the people of Israel, he says through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, the bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire in vain. The refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. Rejected silver, so-called brothers, one who calls himself a brother but is continuing in sin, unrepentant. God warns the people of Israel through Jeremiah. He warns his church through the Apostle Paul. God says there is this category of sin out there that has to be dealt with. There is this category of people out there that have to be dealt with. It has to be removed in order to refine the church. There are so-called brothers. It's a category of people. It's a small category. You know, we hope it stays small. It was a small category for Paul. It was a small category in Corinth. There's just one guy in the whole Corinthian church that Paul brought this up about. Okay? It's not a big category. Remember what this text is not about. It's not about perfectionism. It's not about legalism. It's not about a police church where we go around hammering people. That's not what this text is about. There's this small category of rejected silver, of so-called brothers, which he says in 1 Corinthians 5.11. If you keep reading down past verse 8, he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. 
The only solution to impurity in the church is that Jesus has to be seen as both a pardoner and a purifier. And if people will not accept Jesus as a purifier, they're not part of the church. Because they don't have a whole gospel. And they're unrepentant and their heart is hard towards change. There's lots of sinners in the church. We sin every day. But we are putting that sin out. We're repentant of it. We're leaving it at the cross. We're asking Jesus to purify us. Okay, you see the difference? I want to be so clear about that difference. Right? That there are people that accept Jesus as a purifier and there are people that don't accept Jesus as a purifier. And so the solution that Paul comes up with is you have to have a a proper view of Christ as a purifier and a pardoner. Now there's a bonus section I put in here because you can't read this text and not deal with it. Considering the giving over to Satan that his flesh would be destroyed and his soul would be saved. I thought, it's not really what I'm talking about, but okay, they're not going to let me get away with not talking about it. (laughs) So, special bonus section four. Uh, Bonus section four. God can use Satan to sanctify his people. Okay, so when we talk about this purification, you've got to understand what Paul is doing here and what's going on is that we have to understand God's sovereignty in the purification of his people. And God's sovereignty includes everything, including Satan. And I think we all know that intellectually. But here we get this, as we talk about this sort of steam trunk that we're unpacking, we get this amazing picture of how God's sovereignty includes Satan. And it's not the first time. So we'll see how it goes here. So this giving over to Satan that his flesh may be destroyed, you could take that and you could, if you read a commentary or two, some people might say, well, it's just putting him out of the church. If you take somebody and you put him out of the church, you put him out in the world, then he's under the influence of Satan. That's handing him over to Satan because you're putting him out of the church and into the world. That's possible. But Paul uses the exact same phrase one other time in his letters. In 1 Timothy 1.20, there's two men that he says that he has, I have handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Exact same phrase. Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan. And this has nothing to do with putting them out of the church. The congregation is not gathered. This is just Paul saying, I've handed them over to Satan, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. And then outside of Paul's letters, there's only one other time where this phrase is used. Now, it's actually in Hebrew, but the Greek translators in the first century, they translated this phrase of the Hebrew into the exact same phrase in the Greek. And so this exact same Greek phrase is used one other time in the whole Bible where someone is handed over to Satan. Can you guess where that is? Job. Right? Job chapter 2, verse 6. It is the words that God uses when Satan is asking for Job. Right? God's bragging about Job and Satan says, yeah, but give him a little bit of trouble. He'll turn. And so God says in Job 2, 6, he says, I give him into your hands. In other words, I'm giving into your hands, I'm turning him over to Satan. And the very next verse, in verse 7, it says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And so God gave Job over for the destruction of his flesh. But what was the result after that really long book of Job, right? All the three friends show up and, ah, anybody ever get through Job? <laughs> 42 chapters? Woo! So you get to the very end there, and what's the result? God hands Job over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, and the end result of this smiting is in verse 6 and 7 of 42. 42 chapters later is Job's repentance, or Job's 
understanding. Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. But now my eye sees you, Lord, and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God used Satan to teach Job something. And we've got to understand the sovereignty of God in this. We get a glimpse of it in Corinthians. We get a glimpse of it in Timothy. We get a glimpse of it in Job. That God's sovereignty covers everything, even Satan. That everything God does brings glory to himself. Right? And one of the most glorious things that he does, one of the wisest things, and we talked about this when we talked about the wisdom of God, you remember, and the Holy Spirit and the foolishness of men. One of the wisest things that he does and one of the strongest things that God does is that he uses Satan's own desires for his own purpose. Satan wants to afflict us. Satan wants to tempt us. Satan wants to oppress us. And so God simply uses Satan's desires to accomplish his own purposes for his own glory. And he gives Satan a little bit of leash here and a little bit of leash there. And Satan cannot do a thing except that God gives him a little bit of leash. And Satan thinks that he's doing something for his own good and he's doing it for God's good. And what am I talking about there? Second Corinthians, Paul explains, Paul explains, he, this is not just a theological or intellectual thing for Paul. He understands how this works personally. In Second Corinthians twelve seven, you remember Paul says, because of the extraordinary nature of the revelation and because of the wisdom that he had and the things that he had seen, he was, you know, there was this potential in Paul that he would become arrogant about how basically blessed he was by God to have the revelation and the word of God the way he did. And so in 2 Corinthians twelve seven it says, therefore, so that I would not become arrogant. Again, dealing with this pride thing. So that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me so that I would not become arrogant. Paul knows this personally. He knows that God can use Satan to sanctify his church. He knows that God can even use Satan to sanctify a sinner who's unrepentant. And so he says, in the power of Jesus Christ, give this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. And there's the heart of the message. Right? We... God's grace is concerned with the saving of our spirit. It's concerned with the saving of our soul. The church tends to focus on just being nice to everybody and tolerating everything. When we replace God's grace, which is effective for change, with our tolerance, which is not really grace at all, it's just tolerance, which doesn't change anybody. It just fills up buildings full of people who don't change then that's a prideful theology. It's an improper stance towards sin. It's a low view of purity. So what is all this aiming at in the last minute? <laughs> Get to application. It's a lot. It's a big trunk to unpack. What is all of this aiming at? Paul's trying to deal with this low view of purity. And he says the answer to that low view of purity is a humble theology. Understand that God's grace is far superior to our tolerance. That we have a proper stance towards sin. That we never make peace with sin in our own lives. And we never make peace with sin in the church. That we are always at war with sin. We can love sinners to the end of the earth, but we can never tolerate sin. And that we worship primarily, this is the main point, that we worship and we come to a cross that contains a whole Christ. Not just Christ the pardoner, but also Christ the purifier. 
You cannot divide Christ and say, I'll take the pardon, but not the purity. That's not the gospel. That's not a Christian. We have to be seeking the refinement that God hoped for in his people Israel and that God plans for his people in the church. We need to be refined. The refiner's fire is refining us, and we need to submit to that. The hope for God is not for a perfect church, nor is it a police church. Nothing in Paul's letter says that we're going to be perfect. Nothing in Paul's letter says we need to police each other and kick people out all the time. We're not going to be unloving or heavy-handed, but it is to be a humble church. That's why it's humility up here. The solution for this is a humble church, a church that grieves sin, that stands at war with unrepentant impurity and sets it out of the house, and it embraces Jesus as both our partner and our purifier. The last thing that we want is that God should have to correct us by handing our flesh over to Satan in order to save our soul. That's the last thing we want, and that's what this text is about. It's the last resort. But in the end, it's not about being unloving. It's not about God handing people over to hell. It's about God doing everything to save our souls. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Oh, and I know it's a lot to digest and a lot to unpack. But it's so important, Lord, that we understand that humility is at the root of this text. That Paul is not writing about the guy and his father and whatever, and he's not really, it's not even really about the handing over to Satan. This text is about the purity of the church. Paul's frustration and his desire is to show the church their arrogance, that they should be grieving rather than boasting, that we need to take a proper stance towards sin as a church, that we won't tolerate it, we'll always be at war with it, loving the sinner but never being at peace with the sin in our own lives or anybody else's life. Father, help us to learn from this, help us to be leaders that live by this, help us to shape our church by this. And help each of us as individuals to shape our lives in the same way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.